Welcome back to the lectures on decision-making in public service. And in this lecture, I'm going to talk through part three from Thomas Metzinger's The Ego Tunnel, The Science of the Mind and the Myth of the Self. And part three is titled uh, The Consciousness Revolution. And in part three, Metzinger begins to explore some of the consequences for his ego tunnel and phenomenal self-model. In chapter, this part covers three chapters from the book. In chapter seven, he details the basic parts of what would constitute an artificial ego machine and if creating one is a good or bad idea. Uh, hint, hint. Metzinger um, has some concerns with this that maybe it's not a good idea to try to give things conscious states when we don't fully understand consciousness. In chapter 8, Metzinger provides a discussion of the image of humankind in light not only of the neuroscience findings he's been discussing, but also advances in technologies and potential ways to manipulate or create conscious consciousness or conscious states, new conscious states. Finally, in chapter 9, Metzinger closes with an argument for a new ethics of consciousness and how to think or begin thinking about what are good conscious states and the role of cultural context. So as with the previous lectures, I'm going to work through a few of the quotes from each of these chapters. So in chapter 7, Metzinger begins with this quote for the Artificial Ego Machines chapter. From this point on, let us call any system capable of generating a conscious self an ego machine. An ego machine does not have to be a living thing. It can be anything that possesses a conscious self-model. It is certainly conceivable that someday we will be able to construct artificial agents. Uh, these will be self-sustaining systems. Their self-models might even allow them to use tools in an intelligent manner. So Metzinger is wanting you to abstract here and think about if we knew more details about consciousness and we could make an ego machine uh, artificially, what might, that, uh, what might the characteristics of that be? He goes on to say, in thinking about artificial intelligence and artificial consciousness, many people assume that there are only two kinds of information processing systems, artificial ones and natural ones. And Metzinger says, of course, this is false. Um, and he says that in philosopher's jargon, the conceptual distinction between natural and artificial systems is neither exhaustive nor exclusive. That is, there could be intelligent and or conscious systems that belong in neither category. They're a blend of these categories. Messinger goes on to say, self-models can be unconscious, uh, they can evolve, and they can be created in machines that mimic the process of biological evolution. In some, we already have systems that are neither exclusively natural nor exclusively artificial. He has given some examples in this chapter that you can see in the book there. Uh, and he wants to call these sort of hybrid systems or these mixed systems postbiotic. The likely possibility is that conscious selfhood will first be realized in postbiotic uh, post ego machines. So he goes on to talk about how you could build an artificial consciousness subject and why we shouldn't do it. Um, in the first part of that section, he says, under what conditions would we be 
justified in assuming that a given postbiotic system has conscious experience, or that it, it, that it also possesses a conscious self-model and a genuine consciously experienced first-person perspective. What would these conditions be? What turns an information processing system into a subject of experience, into something that has this first-person uh, subjective experience that we have as part of consciousness? Uh, it says we can nicely sum up these questions by asking a simpler and more provocative one. What would it take to build an artificial ego machine? He goes on to say, being conscious means that a particular set of facts is available to you. Kind of recapping the way we've defined consciousness. That is, he says, all those facts related to your living in a single world. Therefore, any machine exhibiting conscious experience needs an integrated and dynamical world model. He goes on to say another lesson from the beginning of this book was that in its very essence, consciousness is the presence of a world. You need one world, as we've talked about before, um, and a single internal model of reality. And then it gives the opportunity to have the presence of a world. Um, he goes on to say in order for a world to appear to it, an artificial ego machine needs two further functional properties. The first consists of organizing its internal information flow in a way that generates a psychological moment and experiential now, as you may remember from earlier in the lectures. We need a, a moment, a now moment. The second property, Metzinger says, must ensure that these internal structures cannot be recognized by the artificial conscious system as internally constructed images. And this is the idea, if you remember from earlier in the book and earlier in the, the lectures, is that the self-model needs to be transparent. Metzinger says, if a system can integrate an equally transparent internal image of itself into this phenomenal re reality, then it will appear to itself. It will become an ego and a naive realist about whatever its self-model says it is. The phenomenal property of selfhood will be exemplified in the artificial system, and it will appear to itself not only as being someone, having a self, but also as being there, it will believe in itself. Mezinger goes on to say, a system in which the lights are on but nobody is home would not be an object of ethical considerations. If it has a minimally conscious world model but no self-model, then we can pull the plug at any time. But an ego machine can suffer because it integrates pain signals states of emotional distress or negative thoughts into its transparent self-model and thus appear as someone's pain or negative feelings. This raises an important question of animal ethics, for example. How many of the conscious biological systems on our planet are only phenomenal reality machines and how many are actual ego machines? Mezinger goes on to say, an ego machine is something that possesses a perspective. So from going just to phenomenal reality to something that has a subjective perspective. A strong version should know that it has such a perspective by becoming aware of the fact that it is directed. It should be able to develop an inner picture of its dynamical relations to other beings or objects in its environment, 
even as it, as it perceives and interacts with them. So Bezinger goes on here and says, anything that can be represented can be implemented. The steps just sketched that we were just mentioning describe new forms of what philosophers call representational content. And there is no reason that this type of content should be restricted to living systems. Some examples here from Alan Turing, Karl Popper, both very famous and influential uh, thinkers. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'll, I'll read this part for you as well. Alan Turing, in his famous 1950 paper, Computing Machinery and Intelli Intelligence, made an argument that later was condensed uh, thus by distinguished philosopher Karl Popper in his book, The Self and Its Brain which he co-authored with Nobel Prize winning neuroscientist Sir John Eccles. Popper wrote, Specify the way in which you believe a man is superior to a computer, and I shall build a computer which refutes your belief. Turing's challenge should not be taken up, for any sufficiently precise specification could be used in principle to program a computer. This is just highlighting the potential ability to, uh, among other things, but the potential ability to program consciousness as we better understand all of its components. So Mazinger dives a little bit more into this notion of an ego machine and what would some of the, what types of things would we be trying to accomplish with one um, that would give it consciousness. Um, and he goes on to say, the story of the first artificial ego machines, those postbiotic phenomenal selves with no civil rights and no lobby in any ethics committee, nicely illustrates how the capacity for suffering emerges along with the phenomenal ego. Suffering starts in the ego tunnel. It also presents a principled argument, principled argument against the creation of artificial consciousness as a goal of academic research. Albert Camus spoke of the solidarity of all finite beings against death. In the same sense, all sentient beings capable of suffering should constitute a solidarity against suffering. And so, as Metzinger goes on here, one of the things that he talks about is he posits that uh, conscious beings in general, as he says here, um, should stand together against increases in suffering. And the real worry here is that uh, the first ego machines would not be well done and that they could cause immense suffering to the conscious experience of a first-person per perspective from these first artificial ego machines. He goes on, wrapping up this particular part of the, this section, uh, to say, I would argue that we should orient ourselves toward the classic philosophical goal of self-knowledge and adopt at least the minimal ethical principle of reducing and preventing suffering instead of recklessly embarking on a second-order evolution that could slip out of control. After this, uh, laying out some of the pieces of consciousness in an artificial ego machine and a discussion on suffering, um, Metzinger asked the question, essentially, of is it good to create bliss machines or the ability to just experience hedonistic happiness? And... He goes through some challenges uh, challenges to this. Um, for example, uh, he says, but it's also becoming evident that psychological evolution never optimized us for lasting happiness. On the contrary, it placed us on the hed hedonic treadmill. 
We are driven to seek pleasure and joy to avoid pain and depression. Hedonic treadmill is the motor that nature invented to keep the organism running. He goes on to say, evolution as such is not a process to be glorified. It is blind, driven by chance, and not by insight. It is merciless and sacrifices individuals. It invented the reward system in the brain. It invented positive and negative feelings to motivate our behavior. It placed us on a hedonic treadmill that constantly forces us to try to be as happy as possible, to feel good, without ever reaching a stable state. But as we can now clearly see, this process has not optimized our brains and minds toward happiness as such. Biological ego machines such as Homo sapiens are efficient and elegant, but many empirical data point to the fact that happiness was never an end in of itself. End in itself. He closes out this section and says, "Truth may be at least as valuable as happiness. It may. It is easy to imagine someone living a rather miserable life at the same time making outstanding philosophical or scientific contributions." Uh, he goes on and says, his happiness will thus be very different from the happiness of an artificial bliss machine um, or the human subjects hooked up to Robert Nozick's experience machine. And so essentially the argument here is that knowledge is something worth more pursuing than just happiness as we think about the types of goals that... Um, that we have and goals that we might want for consciousness. Mezinger then provides a fun conversation between uh, a hypothetical first postbiotic philosopher and a human, which I will leave to you to explore, but I think is a lot of fun. That takes us to chapter eight. Chapter eight is consciousness technologies and the image of humankind. Um, and uh, he starts with talking about us as ego machines. He says, we are ego machines, natural information processing systems that arose in the process of biological evolution on this planet. He goes on to say, we are ego machines, but we do not have selves. We cannot leave the ego, ego tunnel because there is nobody who could leave. The ego and its tunnel are representational phenomena. They are just one of many possible ways in which conscious beings can model reality. Ultimately, a subjective experience is a biological data format, a highly specific mode of presenting information about the world, and the ego is merely a complex physical event, an activation pattern in your central nervous system. He says... Metzinger goes on to say, today, the key phrase is dynamical self-organization. I was thinking about consciousness and uh, what, a, what a self is in reality. It says, strictly speaking, there is no essence within us that stays the same across time. Nothing that could in principle be divided into parts. No substantial self that could, be, that could exist independent of the body. A self in any stronger or metaphysically interesting sense of the word just does not seem to exist. We must face this fact. We are selfless ego machines. He wraps up this section by saying, in some and on the level of phenomenology as well as on the level of neurobiology, the conscious self is neither 
a form of knowledge nor an illusion. It just is what it is. So this leads him to think about what a new image of humankind is that is uh, emerging in science as well as philosophy. And he says the emerging image of Homo sapiens is of a species whose members once longed to have immortal souls, but are slowly recognizing they are selfless ego machines. And here he gets a little bit into spirituality and religious faith and um, some of the potential reasons for those, given what we know about consciousness. And he is um, quite dismissive of religion here. And um, he says, but our brand new cognitive self models tell us that all attempts to realize this imperative will ultimately be futile, that we're selfless. That's what he's refer referencing. Mortality for us is not only an objective fact, but a subjective chasm, an open wound in our phenomenal self model. We have a deep inbuilt existential conflict and we seem to be the first creatures on this planet to experience it consciously. Many of us, in fact, spend our lives trying to avoid experiencing it. Maybe this feature of our self-model is what makes us inherently religious. He says we are this process of trying to become whole again, to somehow reconcile what we know with what we feel should not be so. In this sense, the ego is the longing for immortality. The ego results in part from the constant attempt to sustain its own coherence and that of the organism harboring it. Thereby arises the constant temptation to sacrifice intellectual honesty in favor of emotional well-being. And Metzinger's uh, sort of open here about the fact that some of these realizations about the illusion of the self are hard to wrestle with as conscious self-perceiving um, beings. Okay. And he says that it's time to rebel against some of these notions of, uh, of self and some of these notions of uh, what it means to be a self and to bring our understandings of self more in line with what neuroscience and philosophy have been telling us. He says, but everything we know points to a conclusion that is simple but hard to come to terms with. Evolution simply happened, foresightless, by chance, without goal. There is nobody to despise or rebel against, not even ourselves. And this is not some bizarre form of neurophilosophical nihilism, but rather a point of intellectual honesty and great spiritual depth. So it might be time to rebel against some of these types of conscious uh, experience or this idea that we have a self that is immortal and unchanging. There's nothing to rebel against, again, because there is no self. All right. So um, he goes on to say, the first phase of the consciousness revolution is about understanding conscious experience as such, about what I have been calling the tunnel. And so that's what this book has in large part been about. The second phase will go to the core of the problem, 
by unraveling the mysteries of the first-person perspective and of what I have been calling the ego. This phase has begun, as exemplified by the recent flurry of scientific papers and books on agency, free will, emotions, mind reading, and self-consciousness in general. The third phase, he says, will inevitably lead us back to the normative dimension of this historical transition into anthropology, ethics, and political philosophy. And this is the heart of one of the reasons of thinking about and thinking uh, th using this book and thinking about this topic in this way for public service. Um, I would agree with Metzinger that this is going to ask all kinds of ethics and political philosophy questions, of which public servants are going to be uh, helping manage, helping uh, implement, helping think about, um, and this is a, a real challenge that we have in front of us. He says, we need an empirical, plausible platform for the ethical debates to come. He says, recall that I previously stressed how important it is to separate these two questions clearly. What is a human being and what should a human being become? He says, consider a simple example. In our recent Western past, religion was a private affair. You believed in whatever you wanted to believe. In the future, however, People who believe in the existence of a soul or in life after death may long, no longer meet with 20th century Western tolerance, but with condescension, much as do people who continue to claim that the sun revolves around the earth. We may no longer be able to regard our own consciousness as a legitimate vehicle for our metaphysical hopes and desires. Political economist and sociologist Max Weber famously spoke of the disenchantment of the world as rationalization and science led Europe and America into modern industrial society, pushing back religion and all, quote, magical theories about reality. Now we are witnessing the disenchantment of the self. Which, if you follow along this far, you might imagine is going to have some challenges associated with it. And as you've been exposed to this and thinking about the nature of self, this is a pretty hard concept to wrestle with. Um, you can imagine what these findings might mean for the general public or a broader audience as well. It's, it's, it's bringing up all kinds of ethical questions and questions about uh, what type of society we should have, what our rules should be, what our systems of governance should look like. He says, we are already experiencing a naturalistic turn in the human image, and it looks as if there is no way back. The third phase of the consciousness revolution will affect our image of ourselves much more dramatically than any scientific revolution in the past. We will gain much, but we will pay a price. Therefore, we must intelligently assess the psychosocial cost. Mezinger goes on to say, uh, now we are entering an unprecedented stage. Centuries of philosophical searching for a theory of consciousness have culminated in a rigorous empirical project that is progressing incrementally and in a sustainable manner. This process is recursive and that it will also change the contents and the functional structure of our self-models. 
This fact tells us something about the physical universe in which all these events are occurring. The universe has a potential not only for the self-organization of a life and the evolution of strong subjectivity, but also for an even higher level of complexity. In this particular section, it goes on to say, through science, the dynamic process of self-modeling and of world modeling were extended into the symbolic, the social, and the historical dimensions. We became rational theory makers. We used the unity of consciousness to search for the unity of knowledge. And we also discovered the idea of moral integrity. The conscious self-model of Homo sapiens made this step possible. So um, he then talks a little bit about altered states, um, and uh, he says the fact that we can actively design the structure of our conscious minds has been neglected and will become increasingly obvious through the development of rational neuroanthropology, being an autonomous agent, and being able to take responsibility for your own life will take a com on a completely new meaning once neurotechnology starts to unfold its neuro phenomenological technology, or what might be called phenotechnology. And he says in closing up for this chapter, this is why we need a new branch of applied ethics, consciousness ethics. And then he goes on in chapter 9 to uh, provide some beginning pieces for thinking about a new kind of consciousness ethics. And uh, he highlights how uh, religious experiences uh, possess a sufficient neurocorrelate, a correlate that can be stimulated experimentally. And he talks about some experiments, uh, an experiment uh, that demonstrate that. So um, we now have examples of uh, brain stimulation that can cause people to hallucinate goals that they um, did not uh, pick and we can also consciously stimulate the feeling of a religious experience. These two examples um, highlight all kinds of potential uh, ethical concerns and challenges. He says, Mezinger says, one can envision a future in which we, in which people will no longer play video games or experiment with virtual reality just for entertainment. Instead, they will explore the universe of altered states of consciousness and a quest for meaning using the latest neurotechnological tools. He says, in principle, we can design our own ego tunnels by tinkering with the hardware responsible for the relevant information processing. In order to activate a specific form of phenomenal content, we need to discover which neural subsystems in the brain uh, carries that representational content under normal conditions. So this stuff starts to, as you can imagine, if you can tinker with consciousness in fairly specific detailed ways, that people uh, might be motivated to try that out in lots of different ways. Um, and how we think about how to regulate the uh, those experiences and access to those experiences through you know, uh, neurotechnology tools, pharmacology, are all questions we need to be asking ourselves about what is 
what should be uh, allowable conscious states and what are good conscious states. And he goes on to talk about that, um, for example, still, he says, the better we understand our neurochemical mechanisms, the more illegal drugs on the black market there will be, both in type and quantity. And he says, if you're skeptical about this, I recommend reading uh, Pycol, A Chemical Love Story by the chemist Alexander Shulgin and his wife Anne, and Thycol, The Continuation by Alexander Shulgin. Um, and these, uh, this couple of these authors detail over 179 hallucinogenic phenolthamines that uh, are variants on MDMA and variants on uh, ecstasy. And um, as we learn more about consciousness, the ability for people to use pharmacology to alter uh, consciousness and conscious states is only going to increase. Um, and that our approach right now of keeping these types of drugs as just banned and illegal um, is maybe not the socially optimal approach. He says, someday we may be unable to meet these challenges with, he's talking about towards drugs that uh, alter conscious experiences. Someday we may be unable to meet these challenges, he says, with denial, disinformation, public relations campaigns, legislation, or draconian penal codes. We already pay a high price for the status quo in terms of abuse of prescription drugs and alcohol. Uh, now the problem is that new challenges are arising, but we have not done our homework yet. All right, he goes on um, to say, assume further that individual citizens decide they are ready to take this risk of a potential uh, drug and demand a legal and maximally safe access to this region in their phenomenal state space. On ethical grounds, should the state interfere, perhaps arguing that people have no right to put their mental health at stake in this way and potentially become a burden to society? Uh, well, if that was true, he says, we would have to ban alcohol immediately. And so the standards here get a little um, uh, inconsistent. He goes on to say, we have not yet developed an intelligent way of dealing with these substances. A strategy of minimizing the risks while letting people enjoy their potential benefits. All we have done is to declare the relevant portions of phenomenal state space off-limits, making academic research on these substances and rational risk assessment practically impossible in most countries. Lives are ruined because we have not done our homework. So he's arguing here for a more reasonable strategy than just banning and just uh, taking away people's choice to have access to these states and argues that a more rational approach would be trying to find ways to minimize the risks while giving people the freedom to explore whatever conscious states they would like. He goes on to say, modern neuroethics will have to create a new approach to drug policy. The key question is, which brain state should be legal? Which regions of phenomenal state space, if any, should be declared off limits? It's important to remember that for thousands of years, people of all cultures have used psychoactive substances to induce special states of consciousness. 
not merely religious ecstasy, relaxed cheerfulness, or heightened awareness, but also simple, stupid intoxication. The new factor is that the tools are getting better. Therefore, we must decide which of these altar states can be integrated into our culture and which are to be avoided at all costs. He goes on to say, Neuroethics not only consider excuse me, neuroethics must not only consider the physiological effects of a substance on the brain, but also must wait, must also weigh the psychological and social risks against the intrinsic value of the experiences resulting from one or another altered brain state. A difficult task. He goes on to say, we should not increase the overall amount of conscious suffering in the universe unless we have a compelling reasons, a compelling reason or compelling reasons to do so. There's no other moral issue in which the gap between insight and human behavior is so extreme, in which what we already know diverges so strongly from how we act. The way we have treated animals for centuries, for centuries is clearly untenable. Given all our new knowledge about the neural basis of conscious experience, the burden of proof now shifts to the side of meat-eaters, and perhaps even to intellectual carnivores, like me. Philosopher parasites and other people indirectly profiting from an ethically dubious research practice. So with some of these warnings and um, some of these exhortations that we should not increase overall suffering, uh, Metzinger comes to this question of what is a good state of consciousness? And here I'm going to read a couple of quotes from him. He says, Neuroethics is important, but is not enough by itself. I propose a new branch of applied ethics, consciousness ethics. In traditional ethics, we ask, what is a good action? Now I must also ask, what is a good state of consciousness? I am fully aware that a host of theoretical complications arises. I will present no extended discussion here, but my intuition is that a desirable state of consciousness should satisfy at least three conditions. It should minimize suffering in humans and all other beings capable of suffering. It should ideally possess an epistemic potential, that is, it should have a component of insight and expanding knowledge. And it should have behavioral consequences that increase the probability of the occurrence of future valuable types of experience. He goes on to say, consciousness ethics would complement traditional ethics by focusing on those acts whose primary goal is the alteration of one's own experiential states or those of other persons. Given the new potential for such acts, as well as the risk, risks associated with them, and given our lack of moral intuition in this area, the task is to assess the ethical value of various kinds of subjective experiences as such. He goes on to say, if I am right that consciousness is the space of potential agency, attentional agency, and if, as discussed in chapter four, it is also true that the experience of controlling and sustaining your focus of attention is one of the deep layers of phenomenal selfhood, then we are currently witnessing not only an organized attack on the space of consciousness per se, but a mild form of depersonalization. And this is in reference to advances in advertising and entertainment and marketing. And um, it makes me also think of the ways in which we use social media, the, the constant um, uh, scrolling uh, and constant barrage of 
information, informed data is attacking our attentional space, leaving us with less attentional, attentional agency. And according to this model, that's a form of depersonalization. And we need to be aware of that and have ways to think about that. He says, my proposal for countering this attack on our reserves of attention is to introduce classes and meditation in our high schools. The young should be aware of the limited nature of their capacity for attention. And they need to learn techniques to enhance their mindfulness and maximize their ability to sustain it. Techniques that will be of help in the battle against the commercial robbers of our attention. And that will not incidentally undercut the temptations to indulge in mind-altering drugs. And here, um, I would agree with Metzinger. Um, I have been uh, regularly practicing mindfulness meditation um, for getting close to a year now. And my own anecdotal personal experience would suggest that through sustained practice in mindfulness meditation, you can reclaim some of your attentional agency and that by focusing on mindfulness, um, it actually has real consequences for your phenomenal uh, subjective experience, of which one can be better controlling your attentional agency. Closing this um, section, Matt Zinger says, If, given the naturalistic turn in the image of human beings, we manage to develop a rational form of consciousness ethics, then in this very process we might generate a cultural context that could fill the vacuum created by the advances of the cognitive and neurosciences. Societies are self-modeling entities. Two. Hesinger goes on to talk more about the cultural context. He says, ultimately, however, society must create a new cultural context for itself. If it should fail to do so, it risks being overwhelmed by the technological consequences and the psychosocial costs of the consciousness revolution. Some general points can already be made. First, we must admit that the prospects for open and free democratic discussion on a global scale are dim. The populations of authoritarian societies with poor educational systems are growing much faster than those of the democratic countries, and some of which populations are actually declining due to low birth rates. Moreover, the major global players increasingly are no longer governments, but multinational corporations, which tend to be authoritarian. He goes on to say, we must strive to protect open societies from irrationalism and fundamentalism, from all those who desperately seek emotional security and espouse closed worldviews because they cannot bear the naturalistic turn in the image of humankind. He goes on to say, developing a consciousness culture has nothing to do with establishing a religion or a particular political agenda. On the contrary, a true consciousness culture will always be subversive by encouraging individuals to take responsibility for their own lives. In closing to the book and to this chapter, Metzinger says, Many fear that the naturalist turn in the image of mind, will, we will lose our dignity. Dignity is a term that is notoriously hard to define, and it usually and usually it appears exactly when its proponents have run out of arguments. However, there is one clear sense which has to do with respecting oneself and others, 
namely the unconditional will to self-knowledge, veracity, and facing the facts. Dignity is the refusal to humiliate oneself by simply looking the other way or escaping to some metaphysical Disneyland. If we do have something like dignity, we can demonstrate this fact by the way we confront the challenges to come, some of which have been sketched in this book. He says, there are practical challenges and there are theoretical challenges. The greatest practical challenge lies in implementing the results of ensuing ethical debates. The greatest theoretical challenge may consist in the questions of whether and how, given our new situation, intellectual honesty and spirituality can be reconciled. But that is another story. And with that, we come to the end of Thomas Metzinger's The Ego Tunnel, The Science of the Mind, and The Myth of the Self. I think in this final part, Metzinger raises some really important and interesting questions for ethics, for society, and thus for public servants. I hope you've enjoyed um, these lectures covering the Ego Tunnel. Starting with the next lecture, we're going to shift over to uh, a few lectures on Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, and this, whereas this book, The Ego Tunnel, has met at the intersection of neuroscience and philosophy. Daniel Kahneman uh, rests at the intersection of psychology and economics and is widely considered the father of behavioral economics, received the Nobel Prize in economics, um, and contributed a lot to our understanding of how humans actually make decisions as opposed to some of the rational assumptions that we had attributed to them. Thanks for following along. Thanks for your attention. And I hope you continue to enjoy the lectures and follow along. Thank you.